I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Curtis Fitzsimmons Jackson. And I'm Charlie Webster. And this is Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down the drug war. The twins' big business became the envy of many. Even Guadalupe, affectionately referred to as Tio, Uncle Lupe, wanted to take everything they had. Lupe was causing issues. He was forcing the brothers to take shipments that were compromised and putting the business at risk. Pete headed out to see Lupe to try and smooth things over. But the brothers' flashy lifestyle drew the attention of more than just other drug dealers. There's trouble brewing, and it's all happening at Uncle Lupe's house. Just like that, they come and they start to beat me with the rifle. Like, he hits me in the stomach, he hits me in the face, you know, like, I'm like, damn, like, and I remember, like, this is Mexico. I used to complain about getting slapped around by the Chicago police, and now these people are beating the crap out of me, you know? He's, like, shoving the back of the rifle into the back of my neck and head, like, don't fucking move. He's telling me, you're going back to the United States. No, he's telling me in Spanish. Gringo, te vuelves a Estados Unidos, pendejo. I hear struggling from everybody. You know, there's 20-something of them. He's putting the handcuffs on me. He's like beating me and he's kicking me, you know? He takes my shorts off. Like, I saw my shoes on, but he takes my shorts off. I'm in my underwear. 
I remember they picked me up like, I mean, they're roughing me up like that whole time. Like, no. I'm not feeling it really at that time. I'm just, I realized I lost my tooth. I could feel like blood in my chain. I could, you know, feel the wetness and I could feel my gum, you know, like, I'm like, enough of two. Here we go. Like, it's the cops, it's the cops. Again, with these stupid winter pads. Put it in over my head. Like this, I'm all over my head, and he takes up my head. I can tape it on my face. Did it break by memories? Yeah, I'm like, here we go again. Before. Yeah, like, here we go again. Yeah. But this time, when they put me in the, they put me in the pickup. They put me like in a truck, I could feel them because they laid me down like on the floor of it, and I could see them like they're putting their feet on my back, and I could feel the rifle. They're like, don't move, man. The vulnerability of being in a situation. The worst of the worst badasses in Mexico, it's happened to. Like when they want someone, you have 10 guys with guns, they'll bring 40. They're gonna shoot out, but they're gonna take you. Even if they lose a bunch of people, they don't care. They drive me away in this pickup. Feel them driving on the road. It's a big operation. It's not just like one truck. To get off the main road, again, that little bumpy ride. Up some hills and down. When they finally stop, you know, they pull me out. I'm still in my underwear. They like set me down like on a rock and I remember being handcuffed behind my back. I could hear them taking like tape off. I could hear him touching the pickup like, you know, and I could hear him like pulling stuff off. I'm thinking maybe they're taking off police decals. That's when I really thought. Yep, I don't think we'll make it out of this one. You know, because people don't come back from that. It wasn't the cops. It's obvious. Yeah? And the only thing I remember that kind of made me know that for sure was that I seen an AK-47. And I'm like, the cops don't use AK-47. Like, they put my shorts back on. They were just quiet. I could hear radios. I could hear radios going off and they're talking. And I was just laying there. I remember getting tired of laying there on the rock and kind of uh, sitting on the rock and laying out, like trying to stretch my back out. I remember a guy coming in, you know, he hits me with the rifle. Hey, I'm gonna ask you something. You know Chapo Mayo? Chapo and Mayo are two of the bosses of the Sinaloa cartel, also known as the Federation. With eyes and ears all over Mexico, the exact number of people working for them is deliberately secret, but it's thought to be in the hundreds of thousands. Tens of thousands more are on the take in one way or another, including most of Mexico's law enforcement. At this point, they had operations in more than 50 countries 
controlled most of the drug operations in the US and made up to $40 billion every year. El Chapo is the most famous name, the one we've all heard of. He's the guy who had primary control over cartel operations, but he's not the only man who ran Sinaloa. Equal to Chapo was Arturo Beltran Leyva and Ismael Zambada Garcia, also known as Mayo. Arturo and Mayo ran different arms of the cartel, but were equally as dominant as Chapo. The wider families of those three main players were often used as lieutenants who helped to run operations and control the money. You know Chapo Mayo? And I was like, never heard of him. Are you sure? I'm like, I'm sure. I'm like, do you say you're a big drug dealer? I'm like, I'm just a student. You know, he's talking to me in Spanish. A couple hours later, it gets dark. It must be like two, three in the morning. I'm having the worst cold. The mountains are cold at night. I'm freezing. I'm like, just out in the open. Yeah, I'm out in the open, sitting on the, on the on rock on the floor. Right? I'm like, oh, I'm getting stung by a scorpion, bit by a snake, <laughs> or both were my luck at that time. <laughs> right? I'm freezing. Shutting from the cold, you know, and I'm shivering, and they, around four or five in the morning, I'm guessing, they, they'd come back and they pick me up, they put me back in the truck, and they drive me back. And they drive me to a, to a place and they walk me out. I could kind of, you know, see under my eyes a little bit that they they have flashlights and they're walking me slowly again. But this time they walk me to a small room, like a cell. And there's no windows in there. They have a bed in there. I was just happy that I'm still alive. So I'm thinking they're gonna ask for a ransom or something. Put me in this room, there's a bed in the time my feet up. You know, put the handcuffs in front of me. And um, they laid me down. That was the first night. They slept at my feet in the room. They'll close the doors and they'll sleep on the floor. And there, there's like five of them. I would sleep more in the day because I was hopeful that this would end, like in the day that I would get out. You know, that something was going on, that my brother was gonna come through for me and that I'd be going home, because they hadn't killed me, you know? And at night, it's where the heavy stress would hit me. You know, I'm laying there in pitch black, and they will continue to sleep either right inside my, in the room with me, or right outside them, I could hear them kicking. I could hear the radios going off and they're talking to people. The day was hot. Like, I'm in the day, I'm I'm sweating, and it's hot in there. I'm just trying to get by, and they'll bring me some water. And I remember they brought me, like, they threw a bunch of rolls of toilet paper. Did they feed you? Uh, at first, they wouldn't feed me. They weren't talking about nothing. They wouldn't say much. The only thing they would say was, once in a while, they'll come and they'll tap the gun. And he'll be like, let me talk to you. Like, I'm going to ask you again. Do you know who Chapo Mayo are? 
I don't know who you're talking about. This, this is what, listen to what I'm saying to you. That's not going to change. I'm from Chicago. I am not from here. Everything you tell me, I don't know nothing to what you're talking about. I'm just here on vacation. Were you saying English or Spanish? In Spanish. I'm here on vacation. I said to myself, I'm going to stick to that story. I'm not going to give him a reason and kill me, you know? I remember um, my arms, when I was falling asleep, I'd wake up, my hands would be so, so numb because the handcuffs were cutting out my circulation. So I had to put the toilet paper under my elbows to kind of like rest my elbows to my side. I remember using the bathroom, like they would walk me. I could see the floor, and there were like planters in the ground, like kind of deep planters. And he would literally like walk me three steps outside the door and go ahead, you get pissed right there. And I remember like having to go up bathroom and he fought bucket. That was the only time I had to go to the bathroom because I didn't eat. They weren't like offering me food at all. They were just giving me some water. And I remember getting up to, to pee and um, I could barely stand. I felt weak. You know, and I started to feel like I'm sweating. I could smell myself. Like, and I would take the, the eye colors off here and there and I could look around in the room, see that it was painted like a green color, old wood furniture. I could see the tile, out, the tile went from the room to outside to that like patio area where the planters were. And I could hear the radios and I could hear there was like the sound of the kitchen maybe next door, like in a separate room, like old Mexico. I could hear him talk. And I remember like a couple of days into it, thinking like, okay, you know, it's four days, you know, five days, six days, seven days or something like this is starting to worry me. I lost count. I, I knew it was a long time of thinking. So many things went to my mind. So many regrets. I believe in fasting because of this. I believe that there's something about fasting and denying your body things that gives you like a spiritual insight. And because of this moment of suffering, of not having food and malnourished and in so much need that I really felt these prayers you know, are talking to God, asking for forgiveness, regretting my decisions, regretting my life. And thinking all these things, these heavy things, brought me peace eventually. So you were almost like wrestling with, to try and bring you peace to, to accept that you might not survive yeah, this. See, I remember like thinking about my brother. I hope Viana finds the right person. I hope my brother saved that, you know, that they make it out. And it was sad to think that I'm 22 years old. I'm rich. I'm going to die though. I'm going to die I'm thinking, what for? Like, so someone could say, I was uh, really good at fucking up my life, of destroying my whole life, and I mean, money, and now look, again, I'm, I'm tied up here. Helpless. Ain't no point in being tough right there. All these happy thoughts, like, but at the same time, I found so much peace in that moment where 
I, I wasn't like giving up, but I was just coming to terms where if this doesn't work out, I had this like these thoughts that felt like that I never really loved someone correctly. But everything was selfish. Like I never even gave someone my best. I never got married. I don't even think I told my family enough that I love them and care for them. I didn't know. Put no one's feelings before mine. I remember reading like in the word how it describes what love is. In those moments, I knew that that's what I had never offered someone. That unselfish love. And the best of me, you know? I was just, that wasn't the best of me. You know, I just, me being me, following in the footsteps of every other loser that went before me. You know, until this stupid life that I had chosen. And the days were long. And I remember, like, getting to a point where they'll come and talk to me, and I'll just curse them away, like, mm, do whatever you want. And I remember hearing them talk on the radio, like, I hear him say, like, Am I gonna kill this guy or not? Like, just like that. Now I'm kinda getting tired of being here. Even if I don't kill him, he's gonna die. Now, when he said that, I thought to myself, Wow. For him to just say it that way, he's done this many of times. It was like nothing to It was him. like nothing to see someone like that, you know, and remember, he beat the crap out of me already. He did all these things to me. He had no heart for it. You know, like, it was just, he's just doing... It's so, like, normal. Normal for him, you know. Yeah. I felt bad for him. I felt bad for him, like... Why? That you could put someone, like, in a situation that you don't really know and just do what someone else is telling you to do without second guessing. I was doing it for, for my own greed, you know, my own selfishness. And you're doing it because someone's telling you to do it with no remorse. I remember hearing the church bells as well. I had to hear them talking about what Sunday was, you know. Anyways, those days end up being like 16 days or 17 days. And I was thinking about my mom a lot because it was Mother's Day and I could hear them announcing the Mother's Day, you know, special service, which is May 10th in Mexico. I can hear the bells. McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My older brother called me late that night, and he said, Hey, I dropped off Peter by Dio's house. It's 11.30 or midnight, probably, and he still hasn't called. So we would go visit him all the time. We were just there not that, you know, a few weeks prior, and, you know, he loved to talk, so we could stay until 2, 3 in the morning. So that was unusual. I'm like, oh, all right, well, it's early. You know, I mean, he'll call you. You know, now we're back. He's like, hey, he says, call. I'm like, call their house. And he says, all right. He said, call it. This shit rings. All right. Take a ride over there. My older brother called me. He's like, I'm not keeping all the lights off no one's here and that's when I was like oh shit I'm like damn maybe they took a ride somewhere you know by then it's two in the morning and uh, I was still hopeful I think I was trying to think positive three in the morning four in the morning I could have dozed off now Vivi starts to call me 
Where's your brother at? I'm like, I don't know. He said he was in college, do you know? He went somewhere. Don't lie to me. Huh? Like, no, I, I don't. I, I can't believe he's still not home. Like, you know, tell my brother to go back again. So my brother went back to Theo's house. He's like, nothing. There's no one here. There's no cars. The lights are off. The doors are locked. Then I knew there was something wrong. I hadn't slept. And you know, as hours passed, now it's like 10 in the morning. Now we're worried. Like he's going around. He's actually sending people. They're like looking in the house. There's nowhere. Now we're trying to like find out what's going on. Calling every number we know. He's going to the town. Like, have you seen Lucas? Around one o'clock, two o'clock. My brother calls and said, Bro, they just called. They said that they have Peter Kinnan. Who's they? That's all he said. He just know, he didn't know who it was. And I'm like, well, he like, they said they have you, Peter Kinnan, and they want $10 million. He started panicking. I said, listen, take this number. You know, we always had like, 20, 30 brand new phones. When I picked out a phone that was already redone, I said, take this number. When they call back, you tell them to call. I said, for right now, go get everyone out of there and come. Then my mom and my dad come. Because I don't know what's going on. I'm like, they're in the town, you know? So get them out of the town and take them to Guadalajara. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like worried. And I start making calls to those people around me, the closest people. My best friend, Tommy, I call him right away. I said, they kidnap my brother. And they're saying that they have Lupe and his sons too. What? Get out of here. They called us. I haven't spoke to him. I gave him a number. It's going to take me seven hours to get there. I'll be right there. I had to call in a lot of favors. Like, hey, listen, my brother's been kidnapped. Because in Mexico, you feel like somebody has to know something. So you call in all these people, yeah. and what are they saying? And Did they know? like, well, let me find out. We'll get back to you. Let me find out. We'll get back to you. I'm on it. He said, we're calling, we have your brother and we need $10,000,000. You guys know Chapo Guzman. $10,000,000. What went through your head as soon as you heard Chapo's name? My heart dropped. I was like, I don't owe Chapo Guzman $10,000,000. I said, I owe Guadalupe. Someone was saying, well, you and Guadalupe owe that money, and we need it. You got the money. I'm like, I don't have $10 million. And he's like, we know who you are. Like, you have houses all over this place. We know that you're gambling 200000 in a horse race. They know things. You got a big old house here, and you got a house on the beach. And he's like, listen, come up with the money. 
And I'm like, well, hold on, listen. I know people like, I if I owe it, I'll pay it. But I've never been someone that never paid. And I know a bunch of people like, if I owe it, I'm thinking, okay, then I'll owe it. I'll pay you, but let my brother go. It doesn't like I work like that. It's not that easy. He was like, so how long is it going to take you to get this money together? We're going to give you time. We got time. And I'm like, I'll see what I can get together. Just do me a favor. Just like, don't do nothing to my brother. And they're really respectful. Like, oh, don't worry, but we won't. As long as you pay. And I was like, all right. Got right back on the phone. Started calling everybody. They say that Chapel has them and calling everyone. I know they're making calls. And by that time that night, Tommy gets there. And I start, you know, just talking to Tommy. Now, Tommy has a brother-in-law who's deep in the cartel. When I told Tommy that Chapo has Peter, he's like, let's go to Culiacan. We're going to get your brother back. Culiacan is the Sinaloa cartel's stronghold and where Chapo himself lived. The hardest thing was that I had to tell, like, me being, Peter's not coming home. What did you say to me? I was just like, okay, Eve. Listen, my brother is kidnapped. And she started crying. I was like, don't worry, I'm going to get my brother back. I just need you to trust me. In between those times, they'll call me. Hey, how's it looking for the money? And I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm getting it together. Oh, okay. How's my brother? Like, listen, hurry up. You know, threats, just calm, simple request. But every time that phone rang, my heart beat a little bit faster, a little bit harder. The Sinaloa Federation has killed hundreds of thousands of people. And Chapo himself claimed to have personally executed more than 2,000. Chapo was never, though, referred to by his name. Only ever dad or daddy, as you'll start to hear. Jay was able to get an associate to set up a meeting with Arturo Beltran's brother, who was running things in Gulican for Chapo. I know who's who, and he's Arturo Beltran's, Leva's brother, who runs Gulican at that time, runs there as in charge for Chapo and Arturo. So you immediately knew who it was? Yes. You know, I was a little bit like, I wasn't scared by his demeanor. He was nice. I could tell he was like, hey, you know, how's it going? Like, real, hey, Chavalon. I love how you described as the one that's, oh, they were nice. They were, yeah, so I felt like, comfortable. Okay, you felt yeah. comfortable, seriously. I, felt, I was scared of the situation, but with him, I just, I seen him, the way he looked at me, like, kind of studied. I'm, you know, I'm a good people's reader, like, I know he knows who I am. And that's a good thing. So just by he, the way he greeted me, like, it's not like they put a gun to my head and brought me to him, shook my hand and said, man, you're fairly young. How old are you? For so many years, we used our age as a plus. Because it's better, you, you're younger, you're allowed to make mistakes. So I think I, I couldn't even lie. If I was 22, 
I could have said 20, just because I, oh, we're kids, right? Take it easy. He's like, yeah, um, come on, pat me, like kind of pushes my shoulders, like come here and talk to me. So what's going on? How could I help you? And I'm like, you know, now we're walking. And he's looking at me, he's kind of tall. Well, to me, he's tall. <laughs> so he's like, he's 6'1". He's looking at me and I'm saying, well, look, I'm here because they killed my brother. And they killed Guadalupe Ledesma. He's like, I don't know, I'm like, oh yeah, well, they kidnapped him. And he said, you owe money. And I said, yeah, I owe some money. Like, let me ask you a question. He said, do you owe money right now? And I said, yes, sir. To who? I said, well, I owe money to Lupe. And he's like, who else? And I'm like, now I know he's getting somewhere. To keep the supply of drugs flowing, they had to pony up their own money in advance. The twins had lots of debts, so there were many people to pay, even before Pete's kidnappers called demanding payments of a $10 million debt. Did somebody just recently give you a shipment of cocaine? And I said, yeah. He's like, who? I'm like, Noel. Yep, that's what I'm looking for. Like, that is my cocaine. Where's my money? I have it. Like, you have it? I'm like, yeah, like I want it right now. And I was like, okay, you got a phone number? Because I had been collecting the money. I have money, I just, I'm not ever gonna pay a debt with someone else's money. He looked at me kind of surprised. I just don't want you to pay, you know, for your brother ransom with my money. I said, Excuse me, sir. I said, I don't owe you no money. He said, I just told you the money. I said, yes, but I owe Noel the money. If you get Noel to tell me to give it to you, I'll give it to you. And he laughs. He said, bring me a radio. They come bring him like a CB radio, and he's like, whatever, gives a code word, a code number. And then I hear Noel's voice on the radio. Yeah. I'm right here with your friend. Tell him to pay me my money, yeah? And he like, okay. He pushes it and I'm like, he pushes the radio. They push the radio. I'm like, hey, Noel, like, you know, Spanish, like, how are you? Good. How oh, good. I'm glad that you're meeting my friend. Yeah, just go ahead and, and turn in the money, turn in all of it. I said, all of it? He said, yeah, all of it. No problem. I will work it out later. I'll call you later on so we can meet. You're in good hands. Don't worry about it. All right, all right thank you. I dial out to my workers. I said, hey, I need you to make a deposit. You know, get this, you know, whatever I owed them. It was like $2 million, whatever it was. I made the arrangements. You'll have it within 40 minutes. Like, That's good. Arturo's Beltran's brother. He said, I want you to meet someone. And he said, here, these are my friends. This right here is Chapio Lomas. And this is Japones. He said, and these are the guys that are calling you for the money. And I was like, wow. And I said, you're calling me? Japones. He said, yeah. Here I am standing with the president that's been calling me for the past 10 days. 
Jay was in the middle of cartel country, negotiating with one of the top lieutenants, who also just happens to be Arturo Beltran Leyva's brother, one of the bosses, and was now face-to-face with Chapo's men, the very people who had been calling him to negotiate the debt that Pete was kidnapped for. Arturo Beltran's brother, he said, so let me explain this to you. I tried getting your brother back. It turns out that he's in debt. The debt that Lupe owes is owed to Chapo and to a couple other people. I like you. I don't even know you, but I like you, but I'm not going to pay your debt. So this is what we're going to do. He said, I'm going to send you so you can go see Chapo. You could work it out with him, and then you're going to come work for me. And I was like, but I don't owe the money. That's not my problem. You could work it out with him, and you could work it out with me. And he turns to Chapo, like, take him, go see my dad, let him talk to him and see what he says and try to work it out. He says, how many keys could you sell? And I'm like, I'm like, at that time, like, I could sell like 1,500, 1,800 keys a month. And that's it? And I'm like, well, if I get a good number, I could sell more. He's like, it was a joke. You know, I'm just kind of being serious, like I'm being business. And he says, I got 500 keys, you know, right there. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't take your drugs. He said, why not? I said, I'm here for my brother. I appreciate everything, but I'm here for my brother. I'm not here to do business. That's fair. And he laughed. She said, this guy, look. He said, he, he's a smart guy. You know, they just staring at me like I'm different, right? I look different. And he said, okay, give me a phone number. And I said, I don't have a phone to give you my number. He said, you have three phones right there. I said, but you don't want to be on these phones. I don't want to cause you no problems. And he said, okay, that's fair. All right. He said, give him a phone number, whatever case you go by on your phone, you call me. I said, okay, that's, you know, we'll do that. All right. I'll see you tomorrow or something. I'll see you later on. So we can continue talking, okay? Let's go get your brother. He said, hey, your brother... They say it looks just like you. I said, nah. That's what they say. Hey, you guys don't look alike? I said, no. He's a little uglier than me. He starts kind of walking away, and I'm here left with Tapiolomas and Japones. And we start talking, and he said, hey, you know, no hard feelings. Just do my job. I said, no hard feelings. And then he's like, you keep saying that Loop is, you know, tied up. Why? And I'm like, well, that's what he said. He's like, you told him that? And he's like, well, that's what Lupe told me to tell him. What? He said, Lupe asked Chapel to tie your brother up. That was like devastating to me. Yeah, what did you think? What was I, going through your head? It's like, what did it feel like? My heart was like, kind of sank, like, what? 
I don't understand. And they're looking at me like my reaction, like, why? I said, no, there's no way. I'm like, like I'm doing business where I've been paying him. Like, there's no way. We don't know about that. Like, why would he say that? You know, I'm kind of talking to myself and they're just staring at me like we just kind of stopped and like, well, don't worry, you know, I'm gonna take you to see Chapel and we're gonna work it out. I stepped outside like the gate and they patted me down. And he said, all right, let's go. We opened the pickup door and it was like a, probably like a level seven bulletproof like truck. They made me sit in the middle. Uh, that made me feel a little uncomfortable at first. And here we are, I'm like sitting next to him and this is like in the middle. In the middle. He's there and I'm like kind of quiet. I'm trying to pay attention where we're going and I know we're like on the back ends of the city. Like there's a lot of like potholes and like bumps. that time, I have a Rolex, a masterpiece. Got like 100 carats of diamonds on it. And probably have like $180,000 on my wrist. You know, the sun hits it, so it kind of catches me like, you know, like the diamonds in my eye. Trapio Lomas looks because as I move, you know, the sun's hitting him at that point. It's kind of hitting him in the face. He said, wow, look at that watch. Can I see it? And I'm like, Sure, I take it off and I hand it to him. Like, wow, it's heavy, man. How much is this watch worth? I'm like, I don't know, 150, 180,000. He said, 150,000. That's how much my dream houses were. And I said, Yeah. And he was looking like, Wow, man, I want to have a watch like this one day. And it's nice. And he started giving it back to me. The minute he started giving me that watch back, I knew I was in a good situation. Like, I'm just telling you, I have a $150,000 watch. You could easily take it off me and just be like, it's mine. I have a chance. It's making me feel better. Kind of gave me a little confidence. That was my little insurance. Reached over his hand and said, here, it's a gift. He said, what? I said, this is my gift to you. I said, you let me out. I said, no, no, I can't take something like that. I can't. I said, no, it's okay, take it. I said, that's a little token for our new friendship. He shook my hand and I looked at him with my hand up. He shook my hand, he's like, thank you. He said, no one ever gave me a gift like this. And I said, well, I'm glad I'm the first one. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We pull up, we arrive to this like farm and I could see like corn on one side and they have like uh, hangers. We pull it, I see that there's a patch, a long patch like, and I see, oh, that's a runway. And there's no tractors there, there's planes, a bunch of small Cessnas. There has to be like at least eight, 10 of them. He's like, get off, and a couple guys come, and he takes me, and they have like an, like, almost like a mechanic shop. He takes me, and I, he introduced me to a bunch of people. Like, I shake their hands, you know, their arm. He tells me, okay, is it ready? When I come out, the plane's already on the little runway. And he's like, all right, come on, like, let's go. So we start walking, and there's the pilots, this tall, skinny kid wearing flip-flops. He has to be 16 years old, 17 years old. And he like opens the door and I'm like, this is not right. Like, hold on. I walk around the plane and 
And Chapiro's like holding the door open. I jump in the back. Chapiro jumps in the front. I see that they got a bunch of radios, like a bunch of CB radios and stuff. Now I could see his feet on the pedals. And I said, hey, Chapiro, we good? He's like, oh, yeah, man, don't worry about it. He's, a, he's the best pilot there is. And I'm like, I'm not feeling well. Um, I look in the back, and they have a bunch of AKs, and they have a real long, like a 50 caliber rifle set across. Like, they have to like, set it at an angle because it's so big. And I'm just like, wow. Like, okay, let me try to settle in a little bit. They push us to, like, the beginning of the runway. It was a smooth takeoff, for sure. To me, I've never been in the, on that type of plane, so the minute we take off, it's like I felt like we didn't even have enough, like, wind. Things like the plane around them and start heading towards the mountains. And it's noisy. They have the windows open. It's noisy. And they're kind of screaming at each other, like back and forth, having a conversation. I'm just like looking around. And I'm like, I'm so scared of so much. The unknown. You know, the plane ride. Everything you could imagine. And just thinking about my brother. I do remember thinking like, man, this is the life they live. Like, and it was about to get worse, but I'm like, okay, like trying to just keep my mind, you know, like busy. It was gonna be a half hour flight. 15, 20 minutes after takeoff. You know, CB rays have been going off. They're starting to cold and I could see that the different radios, so I'm gonna guess that one is like for air traffic control, one is for this, one is for the cartel, the lookouts, you know. This one radio, when they went off, they both looked. You know, it's like they have him clipped on and he takes the radio off. They're kind of screaming out numbers. You know, like 42, 57, 59, you know, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. And then he's like, it's a boludo. That's what they call it, like the Blackhawks. Like the Blackhawk helicopters, smaller, like fighter helicopters. There's three of them. And he's like, slow it down. Slow it down, like just take off the base. Let's see which way they head. And he's like, they're gonna come. What do we have here? What do you have? What's back there? And I'm like, two AKs and a big gun. Like, hand me over the AK. Hand them over to me. He said, get the big one. And I'm like, huh? Get the big rifle. Get it. The military's coming. And when you're in this situation, like, the only thing you do is try to scare them off or something. And they're, they're not scared to shoot. My heart sank. At that time, I'm, 
I'm scared, but I'm like, I'm doing what he says. I go, and the, the gun ended up being a little bit heavier than what I thought it was gonna be. It weighed at least 80, no, 60 pounds, probably 70, but the way I was kind of positioned, it was hard for me to, you know, kind of get over because I'm hitting the roof of the, of the aircraft. And the window doesn't go up all the way, but he said, no, just lean the barrel on the window. He said, you're gonna shoot the window. And I'm like, I'm gonna shoot the window. But to him, he looked at me, I think I'm looking calm. I just do what he says and he like, get it ready. And when I pulled the gun out, when I actually put it, it was a 50 cal, it's already kind of loaded. He has a box of, like it's a box of ammunition. I kind of bring the box over. And he's like, go ahead and just put one in the chamber. And my first try was I couldn't, maybe I wasn't sure if I was weak or I just didn't pull enough. I couldn't, I kind of like pulled it a little bit and I, then I actually I knew I had to actually I put some pressure on it. I kind of put the, my left hand on, on the gun and I cocked it back. It was just silence for a few minutes, three, four minutes. And I'm like, wow, I die here. No one will ever know what happened to me. No one, I won't know, no one will know. I'll just be dead somewhere, this plane will blow up and that's my life. That was like a lot. I'm realizing this, not just because, oh, I'm not as a drug dealer, as a, as a person, as a husband, like, that's it. That's your life. No one will ever know where you're at. You'll be somewhere in the damn mountains, you know, in pieces. I didn't like that thing. It's those little moments that you take in that you, like, think about what's going on. And then he, numbers being called on the radio again. The radio just comes on. More numbers are being called. And I can see him be like, oh, oh, all right. That's good, that's good, okay. And he kind of keeps like, okay, you go, go ahead and take the gun down. I think we're good. And I'm like, I don't want to like accidentally like, for it to go off. So I'm like, how do I take the gun off the chamber? You know how to take the bullet off the chamber? He said, don't worry about it, just, just don't, don't press the trigger, just put, set it back down, you know? Cause I, again, I have to kind of like carry it and then bring it over and and I just kind of threw it in the like, back, just kind of just laid it. And I sat down like, oh my God. And as we're kind of on the plane, we're going to big peaks. Like the plane, I feel like sometimes like the, the trees are gonna just like rub the belly of the plane. And it was this big mountain we were kind of heading towards. And once we hit that mountain, I could see him start kind of like, kind of gliding. Our altitude went down. You know, the mountains are huge, you know, you're like on the plane and I'm like, okay, where, where are we going? Like, I don't see enough runway to like land, you know, like around these valleys. I look ahead and I'm like, I see it. The dirt is like this red orange color. And it's green, you know, the mountains are green and here's this orange like clay dirt field, I could see it like uphill. And I could see him kind of like dive in a little bit. And now I'm really, really scared. 
I'm like, what the fuck? He's bringing the plane down and he kind of adjusts it, kind of going up. He's landing uphill. And I guess that's to slow the plane down. Hard, bumpy riding. Boom. Shuts the plane off. Boom. I'm sorry, it's rocking left to right. Because there's wind and I think I could see him kind of like slamming on, like trying to hold the brakes off. And we get to like the end of the runway, like barely and with the speed of the plane he kind of eases up into a turn and it just stops and I look over and I see that on the side of the runway there's like a bunch of vehicles and a bunch of armed men in camouflage they're in quads and four wheelers they have hats on it's hot right here come on let's go we get off the plane and he's out. I'll be back. I'll see you in a bit. Chapula jumps off. I jump out. And right away they approach him. They have the cars waiting for him. There's a bunch, like, there has to be at least 30 guys, 40 guys. There's a, a small little caravan. We jump in the car. We make our way, like, start driving, like, up hills, like, down these roads, winding roads, dirt roads. Like, some of them are not even, like, actually roads. And I see that a bunch of like more cars, a bunch of armed men in camouflage gear, like army gear, but more a little dirtier. We kind of pull in, like, and like we're here, and you know, everyone's just staring at me. I'm kind of getting off, everyone's just looking at me. Very young kids. I'm talking about 13 years old with rifles sitting there. And uh, he tells me, come on. We go in and there's like some stairs. And uh, we come up the stairs and realize it's a big old palapa. It's huge. Palapa is uh, it's like for the sun. Like in Mexico, they're common in villages, like teepees almost, that are made with um, Palm trees. It's huge. There's fans. But the view, like the minute I got up there, like the views, wow, you see the tip of mountains. It's like amazing picture. You can feel the fresh air. When you're under that palapa, fresh. It's cool. And uh, you, there's a couple of dudes there. And one of them is like, I guess, Chapel, like, radio guy. And he'd be like, where's Chapel? He'll be here right now. I shake his hand. And he's like, I'll be back. I see him kind of go to this end of Palapa under stairs, and I see his head kind of, like, start dipping away. And I'm just caught up in the views, like, wow, man, it's so beautiful up here. And one of them is like, yeah. And he's like, well, I don't know where you from making small talk. As I was walking across the Palapa, there's tables. I see that there's, you know, he has like these picnic tables or like these Walmart tables, like plastic ones. There's a bunch of newspapers 
and it's all half chapel stays in the front of it on the table and has a TV there. As I'm making my way across the Palapa, I see Chapel kind of like climbing back up the stairs. And he turns to that. And I look and I could see his hat kind of coming up the stairs slowly. It's a black, it's a baseball hat, you know, it has the holes in the back. I could see the front of it has these like wings, almost like an Air Force hat, like one of the military hats. He's coming up, like up the stairs, and I see him, and I'm like, he did look a little younger than what I thought. Mustache, he has a white button up shirt, like Wrangler jeans, and he has a black Nike boots. When he sees me, he looks at me, and he kind of gives a second take. He reaches out his hand and he's like, Joaquin Guzman Loera. I tell him my name, Margarita Flores, Juanita Flores. When well, he's shaking my hand, he's just staring at me. Dry stare, just staring at me. And I'm like, when we shake our hand, it kind of like, he's kind of stares at me and I'm kind of trying to like, give me back my hand a little bit. And so how can I help you? That's next on Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down the drug lord. Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down a drug lord is hosted by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and me, Charlie Webster. Our producers are myself alongside Jackson McLennan. Research and editorial support is from Casey Hertz. Edit and sound design by Nico Palella. Original score by Ryan Sorensen. Executive produced by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and myself, Charlie Webster. If you'd like to know more about this story, head over to lionsgatesound.com. Curtis 50 Cent Jackson presents a Lionsgate Sound and G-Unit audio production exclusively for iHeart Podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.